0: listening to the voice of Howard show. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dane. Uh, hey, baby. How is like? Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, Hi there and welcome to another wow. edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. All right, whoever you are out there in the wide world, thank you so much for tuning in and lending me your ears. Yesterday, no, the day before, I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Doug Claw Warbrick. Now, Claw is a force of nature. Seriously, like he has been driven... Since the get go, um, this chat he delves in. I won't elaborate too much, but just like the passion behind his vision in surfing, before there was an industry, before there was anything, and the hard yards that he did to get to where he is today. Claw just had his 80th birthday. Claw, if you're listening, happy birthday! Um, and we find ourselves here at the Rip Curl Pro Easter rally comp whatever you want to call it um it is the 60th year 60th year anniversary of the comp the longest running surfing competition in the world and claw is back in town for such an auspicious occasion um now claw gave me a call on monday literally like this is the guy is a very hard person to pin down he's very busy uh he's still hard at it and he rang and he's like, Diggy, uh, come over now if you want. And I was like, well, I'll be there in 15. He goes, don't know where I'll be in 15. I was like, all right, I'm leaving now. I'm literally, I'm coming now. So I, I wasn't quite as prepared as one would have been, uh, like to have been, you know, going into it. But nonetheless, I think we had a great chat and we covered a lot of territory. And uh, I really enjoyed, you know, Claw schooling me on a few aspects of, you know, early days and and what it all meant to him. Uh, so anyway, I hope you enjoy my chat with Claw. Claw, if you're out there, thank you so much for inviting me over. I really, um, I really appreciate it. And it was really nice to chat. Um, now, Zave Huxtable. Yeah, Zave. Zave today came second in the first heat, heat six, his first heat, heat six of the day. Um to jack Robinson and 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 beat Kelly now huge heat, Jack was on fire, r- rampaging um and Zave really hung in there I think he was let down down a little bit by the waves and za Zave is a former horse's mouth guest, so if you delve back into the archives and you're wondering who Zave Huxtable is who's lighting up the Rip Girl Pro right now. Um, he is a guest of the horse's mouth, um, and he's also, um, I think he's going to be on the Lipt podcast live after his heat today, so you can find out more about uh, the inner workings of what happened in that heat through Zave's eyes on Lipped. Lipped is a surfing podcast, uh, for those of you that aren't aware of it. Yes. Jimmy, Kale, Harry, Man. Uh, so anyway, that's that. That's the Rip Curl Pro is happening right now. It's a big time in Easter here. I feel very fortunate to have had Claw on the podcast. So thanks again, Claw. Awesome. Um, what else I saw in the media today something about uh, EPO and, and an Australian sprinter who's gotten in a bit of trouble for um, doing the EPO. <laughs> and I was read the article and I was sort of like, I need some EPO. I think, you know, like as a 46-year-old male still going for it I, and like my recovery time is always, you know, getting further and further away after each training session and if these substances are abandon the elite level, I looked up the side effects. There's really not much, if any, that I could see. So if anyone's out there and they know me, you know me and you know about EPO, <laughs> give me a call. I would like to know more about it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my chat with Claw, and I'll see you on the other side. All right. You think this is, is interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total far Hi, this is David Bowie. Pretty
1: uh, things have gone down. Well, we were on Sunshine Coast at Maroochydore, so mainly Maroochydore, Maroochydore Beach, a bit of bit of Noosa, a bit of Gold Coast. that We used to go to... We well, called it Little Burley in those days. I think it's called Miami these days. Um, Miami, a bit of Burley Heads. Kira, my dad used to like Kira. We used to do a bit of Kira. How, how old were you back then? Oh, that's from, you know, earliest memories I can re- remember being at the beach.
0: That's uh, yeah. unreal. Like, I, I didn't realise that you were from that far north originally. Yeah, well, my mum's from um,
1: Victoria and my dad's from Queensland, so we were first in Queensland, yeah. How did they meet? Uh, I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) I wasn't around. Yeah, okay, yeah. um, So was your dad a surfer?
1: He was a bit of a surfer. Yeah. He was a sportsman. He was, um, it relates back to the Torquay story and the Garahuts actually, but he was um, all round sportsman, but he's... Number one sport was uh, boxing and he had been on numbers of those boxing and wrestling teams with Dick Garrard Senior and I think my dad might have been captain of some of the teams.
0: Really? Yeah. And so was he rubbing shoulders with um, Rod Brooks's father? Was He was a boxer too, wasn't he? Les Brooks. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, well, there's more of the boxing story but, <laughs> but uh, no, I don't think my dad knows les brooks or was associated with les brooks okay yeah
0: and um well this makes sense to me because like i was wondering you, either, either you hated the cold and you moved up north but really that's kind of your first memories are from up more up that way yep
1: um, first memories at the beach yeah
0: yeah but plenty of memories down here i've uh you know over
1: on the mornington peninsula and torquay and lawn i mean we were back and forth between both states but um yeah, and I can re-
0: remember around here from way back, yeah. And um, and you went to... Did you go to school in Brighton? You're worried about that there? Do you um, want me to pause it? Oh, do you? Do you
1: want it to run or... Stop soon, I think.
0: I'll, I'll just bleep it out.
1: Oh, you can bleep it out. Um, yeah, I went to secondary school at Brighton Grammar. Yeah. Uh, you know, where there's a few surfers of significance. One of them was Terry Wall from Torquay. Another one was Rennie Ellis from Lawn, who was a photographer and I think he... ..he brought the first surfer magazines into Australia. Really? He was quite a character, Rennie Ellis. Um, So he was there. Terry Wall, of course, who I just mentioned... um, Number of other notable surfers, Max Davidson from down at Sorrento, uh, Dave 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 Stevens, a whole range of surfers at Brighton, of course, because we had a bit of a
0: wave there. Yeah, and isn't it wild that really before there was uh, I don't know what you'd call it uh, uh, what we see today. You guys were the, the very tip of the iceberg in following your hearts and love of the ocean and surfing. Mm-hmm. And there's so many poignant or important players came out of that area at that time. Isn't that it? It's pretty wild, I think.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting, that you know, the characters that came from there. Yeah. And, the, the, you know, The Wave used to be quite rideable when the old pier was there and the old bars that it was only 70 metres I think or 70 yards about 60 metres between the pier and the bars but it squeezed the the chop in there Yeah and it would really was in a position that picked up when there were big southerlies or big southwesterlies there's quite a fetch diagonally across Port Phillip Bay and it got quite a wind roll on it there and it would squeeze into that little area and the and the wooden structures on either side cleaned the waves up a bit, so it was rideable, but very short, very short interval. I mean, there might only be a four- or five-second interval between waves and um, fun to surf, sharpened your skills. Sounds fun. (laughs) But it doesn't do it anymore, is that? No, well, I don't know. There's no surfing community or... Well, I don't know of a surfing community like it was because of the the bars and the pier being pulled down.
0: Yeah, so they, um, they created a bit of a, a wedge. It did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, um, but I think a lot of people still surf in the bay. Yes, definitely. And it'd be better on today's short boards. On the boards we had, it was very difficult because of the short breaking, short interval waves. The big boards were yeah, difficult. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What What sort of boards were you
1: riding? Oh, we were riding the... Nine and ten footers. Yeah. You know, the early, uh,
0: you know, balsas and early foam boards. And was this, um, were they locally made or were they sourced from somewhere else? Oh,
1: from all over, but, yeah, I guess they're mainly Sydney boards, but there's quite a few of the early board makers in Melbourne and down here. Vic Dando's. Vic Dando was in Brighton.
0: Yeah. Oh, did he come from there as well? I don't know if he came from
1: there, but... But he was in Brighton. Well, he... I think we spent a lot of time in Brighton. Yeah. When I first came across Vic Tanto, he was in Brighton. Well, Torquay and Brighton's where I came across him. And he was also I mate him my dad's because he was a taxi driver in Melbourne and my dad was a taxi driver in Melbourne. We had a small uh, taxi company that my dad started driving cabs for a bit of extra work and then he picked up a licence and then he picked up a second licence. I think they might have been granted to him for free and then subsequently bought up others And uh, till I think he had... um might have been 36 was the total number of taxi licences he had, so he had quite a big um, taxi business and I think he sold it to Silver Tops or Yellow Cabs or one of them at some stage.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, And he sounded like he was really supportive of you and your endeavours, was this? Well, he kind of
1: liked the surfing, yeah. and he's entrepreneurial. He liked business and he liked the surfing. And,
0: and so did you, stop me if I'm wrong, but finish school and open a surf shop in Brighton?
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: Yeah. And was that fun? Great fun. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think the first surf shop was here in Torquay. In Gilbert Street, we up right near where Go Right Away if, in that area there. Yeah. There's a guy called Eddie Seifert. We called Eddie Desert. Had the uh, the beatnik-type cafe there called The Desert. And next to The Desert, he built, on the land which he owned at the time, a shed for me that was the surf shop. So the shed had, I think it had two brick walls, stand-up okay. Besser blocks... And the other two walls were were wire mesh, wire mesh of about 15 centimetre squares. So in there was a surf shop, which was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Mm. And um, did you see, would China and people like that come past and be like, what are you up to here, young man? A little bit, not so much. I mean, yes,
1: China definitely, but... He didn't show a lot of interest in the shop or a lot of interest in sipping coffee at the the desert, but um, he did come by and he was always um, highly entertaining and informative
0: and inspirational when he did show up. Mm. So you have, must have always, this has been in your heart, of hearts, like this through line with the ocean and because you've Followed it from the very jump. Yeah, right from the big beginning, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know you had a big part in, you know, in the, in the early days of the surf club or in the time when you were younger, you did your time there. And, um, you know, I'm, I was inspired by people who just follow their heart no matter what the odds because I believe that there actually wasn't really a career or anything in that at the time. So you must have felt like you were going out on a limb, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would somehow
1: or other had this belief or vision that, um, uh, you know, surfing would grow into a, well, well, probably an industry, but less than, it, it It could be a job. It You know, it could be a, you could make a bit of money out of it. You could make enough money to go surfing next week. Mm.
0: And so what was the first thing that pulled you towards Torquay of all the different coastal areas of Victoria and...
1: Well, when we made the move from Queensland to Torquay and I went to Brighton Grammar School, was on the back of a lot of interesting activity because not before, long before then it had been the 56 Olympics. So they had the Olympic Carnival at Torquay, which was well publicised in the press in Australia and was, you know, covered by word of mouth. And, you know, we heard Duke Hanamoku was there and, Californian and American surfers with very fast uh, hollow paddle boards but they also had the shorter more high performance they had the balsa Malibus, um well Okanui's I think we called them at the time but they had shorter balsa boards and there's quite a lot of legends about them surfing them in Avalon and Manly in Sydney and particularly at Torquay yeah
0: which was a real catalyst for big the, catalyst, yeah. big catalyst for the the, mm. the the industry. I think it's been worded to me that it might have happened, but maybe twenty years later. And it, it, the fact that they showed up and showed everyone what could be done on those boards, yeah, really, really got things going.
1: Yeah, there were a few of those boards. A couple of them existed in Australia. I think, I think a couple of the California style boards were in Sydney that people had picked up somewhere. Uh, but I think there might have only been two boards there, so the surfing of that style didn't really develop too much. You know, but when Greg Knoll and all those fellas, Tommy Bright and all them, turned up and could surf well and, you know, you could see it in front of your eyes, that got the surfing rocking in Australia. <laughs> the surfing as we know it today. that It's not the the very beginning, but today's style of surfing began there yeah in australia yeah
0: um now i believe was it stop me if i'm wrong but you were fixing dings was it before rip curl for was it clem bell or did you have a job doing dings or something and then before you approached brian and said to, <laughs> oh yeah um, well all of that but um yeah.
1: no the well the the first things i had in the surfing industry, myself, were the shop at in Bell Street Torquay yeah. that I think I called Bell's Beach Surf Shop. There's a further machination of that today which I have nothing to do with. Then I had the shop down in Lawn, Lawn Surf Centre. Well, no, first one was Bell Street Torquay, then in Brighton Beach... In the railway walk near where the surfing was um, down there. That endured for about three years or so. And during that time, I did have a surf shop under the Cumberland, old Cumberland Hotel in Lawn, which at the time I called Lawn Surf Shop or Lawn Surf Centre. Has nothing to do with the one that's there today and the current owners. Um, and we used to trade a lot of surfboards. And we repaired boards. So the board repairing, well, there's two sets of board repairing. One lot was around those shops. Uh, I was doing surfboard repairs there and had other people come along and help. One of them was Brian. Brian. Brian came along and helped with surfboard repairs and helped, you know, selling stuff in the shops, particularly the lawn shop. Um, but in parallel to that, I was working at some of the emerging surfboard makers in in Melbourne. Um, firstly, Max Gill. Uh, I think Max Gill was first. Yeah so, yeah, so I was at Max Gill's place, which was very entertaining when he moved out of his house and into Paran, I think it was, and had quite a big area, and that was great. We had... Other interesting guys there, um, Max Davidson, who I said before, who was a Brighton Grammar School guy, older than me, but surfed down at the Peninsula and he's still down there today. He's a carpenter, so he had a bit of an idea how to shape a surfboard. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a fellow there, Tommy Keogh, who's the brother of Danny Keogh from Keo Surfboards in Sydney. Um, Numbers of characters like that, so... Um, so I certainly worked there, you know, from the bottom up, sweeping the floor and sweeping up the foam dust and sanding surfboards. You know, you start at the bottom, you know, but sanding and repairing dings. So I did that there at Max Gill's. From there I moved to Peter Davies Surfboards in St Kilda. Peter Dirts Davies, he's one of the the more famous, more well-known people from the Torquay Surf Club and an early surfer of Bells Beach, more of the, the 1960 era when the the guys had, uh, you know, somewhat decent nine- and ten-foot foam boards. They used to charge there at Bells pretty hard. Um, and so I was at Peter Davies and then from Peter Davies, I think I went to George Rice in when he was out in Watervale Road, West Watervale Road? Um, uh, north side of Melbourne somewhere. Um, so he had fully blown um, surfboard operation going on there, you know, making proper surfboards, proper production run, you know, 20 or 25 boards a week. Uh, the main players there were George himself and Pat Morgan, Pat Morgan's also a Brighton guy and, you know, did a bit of surfing at Brighton Beach and pretty early surfer of all over the coast in Bells Beach. He used to charge out at Bells on all kinds of big boards, even the 16-footers. He rode a 16-footer out there a bit. He used to like that. Um, yeah, so uh, you there, did, that's all the
0: early stuff. You did an apprenticeship. In an industry before there was an apprenticeship, exactly, and an industry, but you s- pushed yourself in and through it. By the sound of things, exactly, and touched all the touchstones and learned all the all the basic skills and like, the rules of the road. yeah. yeah, you had a vision, like and just like just the way you've described that you've pushed your way in. You must have just had such a, a drive.
1: Yeah, just had the drive and, and passion and for love. it. Yeah,
0: near the people. I love that you brought up Patty. Um, the board that I learned to surf on uh, was a board that I used to go and drag out from one of my dad's mates' houses and surf on it, and then drag it back and put it back. And he then later gifted it to me. Mm-hmm. I've still got it in my office. Yeah. It's an old Patty Morgan. Yeah. What era? What shape? It's a Drew Harrison model. Oh, I know them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a. It's a funny very good. Look, yeah. It's a bizarre looking board. Yeah, but they surfed well. Yeah, it looks like it would have. It was very it's still, really light. And mm. the fin is so far back. Yes. Like in the, yeah, it's it's a wild model.
1: And the board's sort of wide at the back. Yeah. So they, yeah, so easy to turn, yeah. And just the finish of that little progression, I think I'd finished up at Fred Pike's down here. After George Rice, I came down and started working with Fred Pike in Boston Road, Torquay. Simultaneously to that, Brian and myself and Terry Wall relaunched the Bells Beach Surf Shop in uh, next to the Walker's Garage, which was um, next to the Torquay Hotel. Uh, it's about where the... I don't know where where the pizza place is. It was about where that is now. It was
0: Oh, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was
1: just a sort of vacant lot and we put a, a garage on there an old garage and called it a surf shop
0: yeah. <coughs> excuse me yeah so that was lots of fun and so were you making by this stage were you making your own boards
1: oh well yes and no i just messed around and made small number of boards firstly with my dad and then with pat morgan like very small number of boards but Yeah, that's where really Rip Curl began and Rip Curl Boards because we got an agency for the Fantastic Plastic Machines, the Bob McTavish Fantastic Plastic Machines, the V-Bottoms from Denny Keough, and that was the next explosion in surfing numbers in Australia. That's 1967, late, excuse me, 67, going into the... Summer of sixty eight well Christmas sixty seven, that that summer sixty seven, sixty eight. Um couldn't get enough supply. So we started making our own boards and we called them Ripco. But they were made in Brookvale in Sydney by Shane Stedman. And um
0: Is that is that Luke Stedman's dad?
1: Yeah, Luke Stedman's dad.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: He's quite a famous character in the surfing industry and surfing culture Shane. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: wow so you were getting them shipped down so there was already a bit of an industry more so happening in sydney at that time
1: yeah well we had those board makers in always had some board makers in melbourne and victoria the biggest ones were probably george rice and fred pike
0: yeah um i'm going to show you a photo really quickly um uh, a friend of mine sent it to me and said, would you ask if uh, Claw had made this board because no one could work out who had made it? Um, let me just pause this while I... If he had made that, no one knows quite who made that board.
1: It looks very much like I'd made it. It's almost certainly a board I've shaped, down. Yeah.
0: If you flick, there's a couple more photos of it.
1: Five Boston Road, Torquay, so that was uh, the Ripkel address. Well, there's no doubt it's an early Ripkel board and it's almost certainly... I'd have to look at the board to see where I would put markings on them. There they're on the deck, it might be... Well, you can see something written on the deck there, but I wonder if we can blow it up a bit. Um oh, here's a chance huh, I can't see the can't see the handwritten stuff on there, but um, I think that board when I look at the logo, I think that's nineteen seventy one at the Rike bakery could be nineteen seventy it's seventy or seventy one it'd almost certainly be a board i shaped it looks very much like boards that we have and that Rip Curl has and we have in our own family. We've got a, quite a collection of boards like this now that... Um,
0: yeah, no doubt.
1: Um, yeah, we've been acquiring. Well, there you go. Oh, like we,
0: we might have got to the bottom of that one.
1: Yeah, well, close. I'd have to see the board to, you know, be more definitive on whether I shaped it or one of the other, you know, budding shapers in Rip Curl and yeah. shaped the board. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Looks like one of mine.
0: And so um, now you were firstly concentrating on surfboards and wetsuits sort of came secondary, is this correct? Yep,
1: yes. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, a lot of these things sort of happen in parallel and overlap, but I had... Um, ..back in the my early surf shops days and based in the shop at uh, Railway Parade Brighton Beach, I did have some early wetsuits from White Stag, American wetsuits, that weren't bad. I had access to the importer, and I used to get these White Stag wetsuits, and I was selling them reasonably successfully, and they were pretty good to surf in. Uh, so I had that taste of it, and in... Ru- sorry, roughly, what would a white stag wetsuit retail at? Oh, what were the retail prices in those days? Um, well, we had the long sleeve jacket with the beaver tail. There was, I think, they were under a hundred. Yeah. Although, uh, what they called the surfing ones were basically two piece. You could get that. Long sleeve, front zip, long sleeve with a beaver tail. We had shorts that came right up high on the waist and went down near the knee. And then I think we had a vest. I think they were the only items that we had. Yeah. But the most expensive one was the was the long sleeve top and it was, I think they were 79 or $89 in those days. Because it was expensive to manufacture in America and import from America, but the price wasn't that outrageous, really, the retail price. Um, So I'd had that experience. Oh, look what happened there was Nat went to California and won the World Surfing Championships in 1966. He dominated there, so I'm talking 64, probably 65, getting some traction selling these white stag wetsuits. And when Nat was over there... He's a very impressive character and a great surfer and the owners of White Stag gave Nat the distribution rights for Australia and he came back, they had some new style of wetsuits like they had a short John, one piece that you know went from above the knee and had no sleeves in them and they were pretty good to surf in but um, all the sales and distribution thing changed. So I didn't have the rights to sell the the wetsuits anymore. Mm. Nat was selling them. Uh, So the wetsuit trail went a bit cold there in late 66, 67. For us, for me, and for us it did, but then it later warmed up again in about 69... Because Alan Green, you've got Alan Green in your story. Have you spoken to Greeny? Or? Uh,
0: no, I haven't spoken to spoken Green. Spoken to
1: John Law and spoken to Brian. Yeah. But at the time, it's a bit like some other companies in other industries, maybe Silicon Valley and stuff. We had a bit of a, what do I call it, creative soup going on at that time um, in the wake of the Summer of Love and the hippie flower power thing, and so we started a few companies together. Um, well, a few companies or making a few products. Uh, first of those was Rip Curl because we had the Rip Curl name from the boards that we got from Sydney in late '67 early 68, so we had the Rip Girl known for the boards and Brian and I were kind of chipping away with that. I'll explain more about that later. Um, a couple of guys had made some board shorts around Torquay. Uh, others had made them earlier, but around that time a couple of guys made some... started making some board shorts r- around Torquay and they disappeared. One of them went to the Murneys in... Oregon or something and um anyway Greeny was mates with them so he got a bit interested in doing the board shorts and that sort of evolved into the early quick earliest Quicksilver board shorts we had the rip curl boards and we started making Ugg boots you've probably heard the Ugg boot story but we've got it's not well publicized but we're part of the Ugg boot story because um the The trading company, the, you know, the commercial company that was Quicksilver was first called UGG Manufacturing, just one G with a UG. So we used to make UGG boots and sheepskin coats and other sheepskin products.
0: Is that why UGG... Oh, no, that's EMU is in Geelong. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. yeah. But um, What
1: else was the other bit of that story? Oh, Greenie, it, it comes from a... Uh, finance and accounting background and he was working as an accountant at Australian divers that sell I've forgotten his name, Mitchell, was that his name? Some famous diver from Second World War and I oh, was the, a diver from the war From Second World War, the guy Mitchell I'm trying to think of his other name and um, you know he was it in the spearfishing competitions and all that sort of thing Anyway so Greeny was working there and they made some wetsuits. They were making... I think it was called Australian Divers. They are making some di- primarily diving suits. So Greeny saw the wetsuits there and he started chatting with the the wetsuit cutter and designer. And then talked to us about what well, we can do wetsuits, you know. Because... Um, I've got access to him here at Australian Divers, and Brian also knew the the Mitchell guy somehow I don't know how, but anyway, that's all around the the sixty nine seventy mark so all of a sudden we are expanded into wetsuits, board shorts and sheepskin products and a little you know, after a couple of years, they took their own directions, like sheepskin stuff dropped off the map. And Greeny went strongly on with the board shorts that became Quicksilver. And Brian and myself went on with the, primarily with the wetsuits that are the core product for Rip Curl and still are today. And after a few years, the surfboard part sort of fell away. Um, there's still Rip Curl boards, but we lost interest in doing boards. It was a lot of fun riding them and shaping them, but... Um, the commer- commercially, the wetsuits and other stuff had a lot more traction. Well, the wetsuits just got traction immediately. Yeah. So we were just, you know, swept up in the the fact that we'd learnt how to make. Well, we were learning how to make wetsuits, and we learned how to produce, you know, two or three wetsuits in like a week, goofing around, and the next thing you know we were making and sell, selling 100 wetsuits a week. quite hard to follow how we went from, you know, yeah. two or three or four just for ourselves and now it's 100, you know.
0: <laughs> I, I heard there was different people around town, like some people were like gluing in their kitchens and then they'd get picked up and someone would sew them somewhere else. And just, That's know. what we did. I,
1: yeah. I had the flats in 66 Sealy Bay Road, they're still there, by the way, but there were two flats, very small, two finished flats and two unfinished frames that they'd been built for the 56 Olympics. Someone built them to rent them or sell them when they're 50 and we had picked them up. I bought them there with the assistance of my dad, bought them in, I can't remember when, um, sometime in the late 60s, um, you know, a decade on from the... Um, the the Olympic surf carnival application for him, but we bought him up, th- that uh, real estate there a, a decade later, and that that's what we used to cut the the rubber. Yeah, we used to, used to take the ne- store the neoprene there and do the cutting there. Brian and myself had you know cut the cut the rubber, all the pieces, and then we'd farm them out around Torquay to put them together. Some people had sewing machines. We had gluers. In those days, we first glued them and then sewed them. Uh, they're different stitching to what what we do today, but wetsuits are glued and sewn again now today with, you know, better technique and better machines. But, yeah, the pieces used to go out around Torquay and was a little, um you know, backyard industry with piece rate workers. And they were able to punch out Quite a bit of volume.
0: Were you at that time um, just having a great time? Like in my mind, it's a, I've a romanticised to be like, not many people in the water. Oh,
1: we are having a fabulous time. Yeah. <laughs> because mainly we, we only wanted enough money to sustain our surfing lifestyle. To have enough money to, you know, get from one week to the next. So... It became a bit invasive when the wetsuits started taking off so much that we had to spend a lot of time on it. But we mainly worked on the wetsuits at nighttime and surfed all day. Yeah,
0: I'd spoken to Gail Cooper and she just she said she used to come through and be climbing to get into the wherever you get the wetsuit, you're climbing over mounds of rubber. And she was just like, It was just I remember the way she explained it was just a really fun time. And I was just like, I, I. I I sometimes feel like I love the simple life and just space and you just must have had all that and abundance.
1: Oh, absolutely. It was fabulous. They were glorious times. And Gail's referring, I think, to when we shifted to the old bakery in Boston Road. I think we're at we're at 5 Boston Road, I think, down this end. I think Fred Pike's 35, yeah. And um, so we had the bakery in the front with we converted that into a surfboard factory and the old house out the back became the centre of the wetsuit operation. So that's where the neoprene was and that's where the finished wetsuits were and some of the gluing and sewing was done there but, you know, other other parts of that were still uh, out and about around Torquay in people's back sheds and lounge rooms. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: Hmm. And so who, who at the time was like, did you have a favorite surfer at that that period of time that you were um, or you know like I I know through different parts of my life I looked up to different surfers for different reasons and oh yeah well always favorite surfers
1: but you know we didn't have to look too far we there was all those talented surfers down at lawn when I say the talented surfers you were just referring to Gail who was so successful and um, Wayne Lynch with all that incredible talent, you know, he's you know, one of the freak talents of surfing, like equivalent of, you know, the, some of the superstars of today. Oh, well, 100%. Very progressive and, you know. Um, so we were around those people and we could see them more, more often, but we had a good relationship with all the best surfers in Australia and some of the overseas ones because... They came here frequently to surf. Well, every now and again they came to surf and many of them came at Easter when the waves are good and they would surf in the contest at Easter. Uh, And that... Well, the, the interstate surfers were there from early days, from the early 60s, and even in the early 60s, some internationals had turned up and pretty soon there were a lot of internationals. So... Once a year you could see the best surfers in the world at, around at Bells Beach, yeah. for a number
0: of days, yeah. And you guys, I believe, would always host quite well. I heard those, you know. Um, tell me, is this true, that uh, after some of the parties that um, you and Brian would open the store up to those that might have been there and said, just have at it, what would you like? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if that's entirely true. Um,
1: no, that's more media night. At one point, we had an evolving um, party or event or whatever social event called media night, where we, you know, just supported the the Australian media or international media that had supported us. It's really, a Brian initiative for want a bit of word words yeah, uh, we me- media so once the event was big and rolling and also our brand was rolling we we had um pretty good you know relationships with media in australia oh, and globally surfing media and some of the more mainstream media so um we started doing a little dinner a casual dinner at the local Chinese restaurant with um, some of the folks that had come into town for the event, the media folks. And it, it was media night when Brian had say, you know, go and take some stuff from the shop, you know, take some clothes and grab a wetsuit, you know. So that was media PR, really, in a very grassroots, very effective way. And he did that a bit with um, some other groups. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes a bit of wider, you know, a little bit wider group of surfers.
0: Yeah, mm. sounds great. Sounds like kid in a candy store kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now this Chinese uh, restaurant that you speak of—it sounds like it, it. If the walls could talk, um, was that where the doily was eaten? No, different. I'm not
1: sure where the doily was eaten, but that could have been the Summer House restaurant. I think. Oh, Okay. But that's the quicksilver. That's a yes. That's we're definitely talking quicksilver history now, and I think um, I think Alan Green was part of that story, so he'd, he'd yeah, be yeah, the best yeah. to ask.
0: No, we'll stay in our lane. One. we'll stay in our lane. So, when what was the the catalyst that made you jump from Boston Road to across the the other side of the highway? Just. Oh, we went to
1: this side of the highway first. You Both with... well, you know where Torquay Medical Center is? Yeah. Opposite Ripcurl. Yes. Both Ripcurl and Quicksilver moved in there. So that medical centre uh buildings, if you look at them closely, they're, they're two buildings. And the build, the north building was Ripcurl and the South Building was Quicksilver. So we did have to get some rezoning. In those days, that side of the road was South Barwon Shire. We needed to get some rezoning, and then both Quicksilver and Ripcurl went there. But we both were expanding rapidly. So the Ripcoil part of the history, we went there in, just got to get the years right, uh, 75. So left end, end, Road. End, end of seventy five. Yeah, where well, say start to seventy six. We'd left Boston Road. We're in Surf Coast Highway or Geelong Road, Torquay, um, and um, we hadn't hadn't called it Surf Coast, which we did. I did, I guess. In terms, Surf Coast and Surf Coast Highway hadn't done that yet. So that was, um, but we only lasted there the five years. Then we went across the road where also we had to go through a much bigger process of rezoning. It was pretty transformational, really, because we got a big chunk of John Spittle's um, sheep farm rezoned to commercial and light industrial. Um, and Ripco built the first building there and quickly people jumped on board with the rezoning and that surfing industry stuff. Mushroomed up there. Quicksilver went down the back of Baines Court, where, the, well, it's Southwest Brewery or something now, but they had magnificent um, uh, quarters down there. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Oh, well, in all that, it was quite interesting. At that time, I think Jeff Kennett was a premier, mm-hmm. but the government wanted to reduce the number of shires. Reduce the number of rural shires, not increase them, and they were trying to make Torquay part of some part of Greater Geelong. They're more or less succeeding in different ways now, <laughs> um, but Torquay was always split with the Torquay Highway or Geelong Road. Torquay one side was bare, the Bell's side was bearable Janjuk and Bells were Barableshire shire. Torquay side was South Bowenshire, so we were able to engineer and shepherd through, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the creation of a new shire called Surf Coast Shire. So we had the Surf Coast Shire, we had the Surf Coast Highway, we had that development there it was called Surf Coast Plaza, and primary players in that were. You know, Brian myself at Rip Curl and particularly Alan Green at Quicksilver uh, and um, a few other people around Torquay, I think Brian Hayden. And during that process, somehow along the line I'd coined the phrase Surf Coast Shire and I thought that would help all this go through, that that was an appropriate name for the area and they all seemed to like it, you know.
0: That's incredible. I had no um, idea that... You guys were the, the the that it was split, South Barwon, Barable, yeah and you guys were the catalyst through, I suppose, industry to create its own, yeah, our
1: own shire, yeah, create name. Sort of outline the 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 basically basic concepts of how the shi- shire should today. look and operate, yeah, yeah.
0: It's uh, it is is it a mind bend for you to drive into town these days? Oh, it is, because I think they might have
1: lost their way a bit on the principles and values we had. They had been able to stick to more closely to the principle principles and values we had, and vision we had. The shire and so on, the pl- town would be a better place. I think somewhat better, wouldn't be that much better, but I mean we would have just regulated a bit. Around look and feel and behaviour, it's pretty disconjugial. Is that the word? <coughs> Disc- Disconjugulated. Yeah, um, yeah we, we don't like that.
0: No, <laughs> no nobody know. else does either. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> it's it's it is it's wacky. But I, it, do you think to some degree that it's got to do with like I don't know there's just there's so many people everywhere that it's but you, you could have regulated a little bit. Well. It, Yeah, like people have rushed
1: in over the generations, really. There's been, you know, various set points of growth. And the new ones do... Well, rushing in's a good name. They get excited about the place. They come in fast. They want to change things. They want to become part of everything. And, you know, after 10 years or so, they've started to get how it works and their attitudes have changed, but... They've already done some of the damage because they're the sort of people that are more likely to, you know, get themselves involved in the, the council and take positions in the in Shire Council and decision-making and, you know, they're for the right reasons. They think they're being progressive. and But if you asked them after they'd been in town for 25 or 30 years, they'd probably go, oh, we'd do things differently. Now, we have the same attitude. Attitude. We would do things differently, but we had we did what we did and have the influence that we could have. We we didn't dedicate our lives to being counselors. Maybe we could have, but we wouldn't have been able to make the contribution to surfing in the surfing industry. Then it would have been a a different contribution. contribution. Yeah, Yeah. totally.
0: Mm. Um, And I'm glad that you. Went the direction that you did, <laughs> you know. I, I I worked in on the floor in Rip Curl uh, late '90s, yeah. early 2000s, and yeah. I, I I just always enjoyed my time in there, yeah. and always enjoyed seeing you and Brian still come in very hands on. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, always having a look around, just seeing how things are going, and you know, always at parties and different things. Just uh, I, I I loved that. I thought it was an um. Well, yeah. we liked it too, and we thought that was the way you're supposed to do things there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that sort of way of uh, running a business is getting lost by the wayside so a little bit in the modern world? Maybe not in Torquay.
1: I mean, Torquay's got the corporate world. I think that the, you know, board riders are what Quicksilver's evolved to is probably in the real corporate world now. Real fully blown corporate world, and the Patagonia's brilliant company with brilliant values, but it's somewhat corporate. I mean, Rip Curl's somewhat corporate in the whatever they call the group. Um, what's it called? Uh, you know the group with Katmandu, uh, Bandu, KMG Brands or whatever brands. Oh, that's group. who bought it from you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's some changes there, but there's there's a very similar spirit around Torquay. There's a lot of smaller and medium-sized businesses that are, you know, uh, more grassroots and run how things used to run. I mean, Gander, isn't it? Gander Clothing. Gander, they, yeah. I mean, they started the boy's dad, Peter Rudd, his main business was silk screening for Rip Curl when we were making clothing and more product in Australia and in Torquay. So he he set up a business in Baines Court, silk-screening T-shirts and sweatshirts for us, and that has grown to the next generation of Ruds and Gander Clothing, and I got a feeling they run things the way we used to run things. Yeah. So that spirit still living and well, and numbers of others. Those other, somewhat smaller businesses in Torquay have been run that way, but some of them are not that small. Gander wouldn't be small. I don't know. No, it's very say big, they are.
0: big. these days, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's it seems know. to be everywhere.
1: It's got to be over a hundred million, doesn't it? Probably it's sales in a year, but probably haven't studied it. But they'd have that number cl- covered easily, I think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, look, just do you do you pinch yourself when you look at like your the the youthful you just gun ho doing an apprenticeship of your own sorts for the love of the ocean surfing surfboards to, you know, you come down here today and we've got the Easter probe about to happen and what a, like, yeah. it's a global event, you know, do, do you, does it blow your mind or has it just happened and you just sort of like, it doesn't blow your mind because you've been part of it all the way? Well, it, it, some of both, yeah.
1: Both are true, you know. And I noticed, especially with COVID, and I've, now, I've lived back in Queensland for the last 20 years. My main residence is in corumbin And then being sort of blocked out over COVID, coming back into Torquay and seeing the growth. I mean, just the scale and numbers, it's unbelievable. And it is a bit chaotic, unfortunately. You know, the, the growth's not very well controlled. Uh, it just seems like it's a landslide of people wanting to be on the surf coast and have Talker as the commercial and happy place centre of it all, you know. Um, so that's a shock. But the contest not so much of a shock, I mean, because we've just lived it year by year, by year, or, or 60 years now, and it's kind of a cornerstone of the world tour, so none of that surprises me too much. It's, it's one of the stable bedrocks of the world tour. Yeah.
0: Do you, do you know what b- b- baffles my mind? Even I remember. I think it was two thousand and two. Has it a guess when Oki came out and won? This was it. The skins or something that was happening, yeah. and it was just rail game, mm-hmm. power turns, yep, uh, unbelievable surfing. Mm-hmm. And then looking today at now how much it's progressed. The rail game's still there, but the above the lip game does that like for me even that blows my brain how much we it's pushed like that elite pinnacle yeah surfing's evolved really rapidly
1: particularly over the last decade or so and particularly in the air and all kinds of progressive and creative maneuvers but you know the fundamental solid strong surfing is still at the core of all of that and um you know, when you watch the world tour, I mean, many of the heats are won by, you know, good, solid, hard, full carving on rail surfing. This is winning winning as many heats as the other. But it's great to have, it all, have them all, all, have all the weapons, but if you've got all those skills and all those weapons, you can't fire them all the time. The surf's got to allow, you know. And I know the judges and the judges are probably just reflecting the taste of the spectators and the audience. They still want to see the the good old power surfing, as the fundamental base of all of it. Yeah. If um, they don't want too much of um, too much air show, or they don't want tricks, you know. If the air show is becoming tricks, people get bored with it very quickly. You know, if they're le- legitimate, exciting, big.
0: Fully rotated airs and so on, they love it, yeah. mm. Mm. agreed, I think yeah, you know, I won't go into too much about that, but the John John, he seems to have that full power to air and yeah- fu- functional aerials exactly
1: um, well, a lot of them do now, that's sort of the formula, yeah, you're supposed to have all those things in your arsenal and you know choose the to go to the right weapons at the right
0: moment yeah. <laughs> that's how you get the big scores flicking the guns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So over the years, just like does, do you think of um, people who have been your stable as surfers, um, Tom Curran? Yep, one of the all-time. Do you think? Rip oh, Cal- no, no question. I mean, we
1: like our multiple world champions, obviously. <laughs> um, well, we love we love them all as surfers, and a lot of the pure surfers, and some of the our better surfers that have been on the search with us are not competitively successful or not highly successful, and they have just as much resonance and meaning to Rip Curl. But if we do talk about the ones that had competitive success that are well-known by the public, I mean, it's pretty easy to measure by the multiples of world titles and multiples of victories. That's a statistical... Thing like in other sports, so those multiple world champions we've got three of them, three great ones that have got three. There's men, we've got men with three world championships Tom Curran, Mick Fanning, and Gabriel Medina. They're all unique and different, but they're all great characters and great surfers. Um, yeah, with their three world titles each and a stack of. Tour victories, well Tom thirty four victories, that's a huge number. Those numbers are being brought back to the pack a bit now. Well, Kelly's one he's just keeps going on. He's one he's fifty six or fifty seven or whatever, but I think a couple of the girls are around that Tom's mark. Well, Steph, I think. Steph's yeah. around the I can't remember off the top of my head, but she's getting somewhere near that thirty four victories. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and then the other, all the world champions. Well, the next male multiple world champion on Rip Curl's list is Damien Hardman with
0: Dumer. two
1: titles, Dummer, Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's a very significant in Rip Curl on many levels and I think he won 19 tour events. Um, yeah. And then the girls have won plenty too. <laughs>
0: It's it's amazing. It must be an amazing position to be in. But to see someone like you know from taking Mick on from being so young, and then seeing Mick grow into the man that he is today, you know, and he's just I don't know Mick, but I I what I see of Mick, I just think he's a real stand up guy, you know. And you've seen the transformation from young to you know the, the the still the professional that he holds himself today. That's extraordinary. And he's learned a lot through hardships
1: and hard knocks, and but he's a real strong character, and I think Mick really is the leader of the surface, even though he's not competing. You know, as he was, that's not his main focus anymore. But he's the true leader of the of, of the surface of the pro surface. Mick, Mick's the leader. They acquiesce to Mick and listen to Mick as to. Direction and how they should behave, and so on.
0: Mm. Yeah, and how
1: they should surf, because he's a great example of, you know, the that fundamental power surfing at at the core of his surfing. He's got plenty of progressive stuff too, but not so much in the air. That lot of progressive surfing that goes beyond the regular power surfing, but his power surfing base is incredible, and speed. Speed and power, you know, they're fundamentals there, aren't they? Mm.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. Mm. Um, look, I don't want to keep you too much longer. You've given me an hour of your time. I, uh, claw, I just want to say I'm, I'm very grateful for the phone call and uh, offer me to come over. Um, so I just want to say thank you and, um, yeah, it's good to see you down here and I hope, hope the contest goes off well for you. Me too. And it's been lots of fun. Thank you. Yeah,
1: pleasure.
0: Okay, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Doug Claw Warbrick. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Claw. It's a, a, a wild tale of success seriously like um from a guy who really was taking on a career and had no idea other than a love for the ocean which i completely understand but at a point in time where there was no benchmarks and no one to look up to it's wild it's wild so some some part of me thinks that there's some you're gonna roll your eyes if i said the word divine (laughs) some sort of divine intervention in the surfing highest order, you know, like surfing must happen through these people. And they are, they are the pioneers to what we love today. Well, I, I, you know, what I love today, not everybody is a surfer, but there are fucking lots of them nowadays. I'll tell you what, and there always has been, there's always been a lot of surfers. The ocean draws people in forever for a millennia. Like we all love the ocean for different reasons. Like some people, we all know, like, I'm gonna, diving, swimming. Oh, shut up, John. Look, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Claw. Um, and until next time, well, let me say one more thing. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, adios.